Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Robbie Martin. This is going to be another solo podcast. I just recorded a new podcast with Abby, and that's going to come out fairly soon, probably immediately after this one. And today on the Media Roots Radio subseries, the 9-11 Bulletin, this entire episode is going to be about the 2001 anthrax attacks. Now, the anthrax attacks timeline um, is important because it sort of illustrates some strange things and anomalies that surround the events. A little later in the broadcast, we're going to play a a very long interview with excellent author and activist Graham McQueen. Uh, Graham McQueen just released a new book called The 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy. Graham is one of the only people out there to write an entire book surrounding this event. Among the truther community, which has been largely shunned by even most of alternative media, even among that community, there isn't much focus on what I've seen for a very long time as the second stage of the 9-11 attacks. The 9-11 attacks themselves took place in Manhattan and Virginia. They were localized. It struck insane amounts of fear into the hearts and minds of people on the East Coast, especially those who lived in New York. But the 9-11 attacks on their own would not have had a lasting traumatic impact had it not been combined with other supposed attacks, terrorist attacks. Specifically, if anthrax didn't happen immediately in the wake of 9-11, I don't think that the administration in America would have been driven into such a state of just irrational fear and panic as we saw what happened um, after 9-11. There were other incidents, of course, that happened after 9-11 that sort of ratcheted up the fear. The Richard Reed shoe bombing incident and also the D.C. sniper, they turned out to be Muslim and yada, yada, yada. I mean, so essentially these things happen within the span of a year after 9-11. First 9-11 itself, World Trade Centers in the Pentagon, anthrax. You could hear about those more in depth if you go back and listen to the episode Abby and I did called post 9-11, how we all became boiled frogs. It's about a year old. Uh, you could scroll down. Actually, it's over a year old now. But if you scroll down the SoundCloud page, you, you should find it. So this brief history of the anthrax attacks that I'm about to launch into will be pretty familiar to people who have listened to our previous episode on the anthrax attacks or who've watched my film American Anthrax or people who've already read Graham's book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception. If you're already pretty versed in that part of the story, just the sort of official timeline and the sort of the different events that happened in the wake of the anthrax attacks and who they eventually pinned it on. Fast forward to about 40 minutes into the broadcast, and that'll just go straight to the interview with Graham McQueen. So on the evening of 9-11, a very strange thing happened. At the very least, if we give the Bush administration the benefit of the doubt, at the very least, the Bush administration was warned by someone internally. They were warned that a biological attack was imminent. 
And this person instructed them to inoculate themselves with Cipro, which can act as a preventative measure for anthrax infection. So if you're on this antibiotic Cipro and you get, you breathe anthrax, this antibiotic will fight it off. The Bush administration at the, at, at best, best case scenario, giving them the benefit of the doubt at the very least, they allowed five people to die from subsequent anthrax attacks that happened that happened less, a little bit less than a month after they were already inoculated with Cipro. That alone su- does suggest that they might have had foreknowledge that the anthrax attacks were coming, which is quite strange considering that the person they eventually pinned the anthrax attacks on was an employee of a U.S. government lab. It came domestically. So what kind of foreknowledge or intelligence they had suggesting that something like this was imminent doesn't really make sense in my mind. So around October 2nd through the 4th of 2001, we're less than a month out from 9-11. Tom Daschle and Senator Leahy were raising concerns about the newly introduced Patriot Act. The Patriot Act was introduced to Congress on October 2nd, 2001. You know, you, you don't really think of Tom Daschle or Patrick Leahy being radical liberals or civil liberty champions because they're not. But this was an instance where they both together held enough power where they could sway the voting when it actually took place. And they voiced concerns about it publicly multiple times. They just wanted more time to vote for it. And they were trying to barter with the White House about the time frame. John Ashcroft was putting immense amount of pressure on them and sort of chastised them for dragging their feet. So this is sort of happening in the background. This is already after... I believe it was already, yeah, it was after the Authorization to Use Military Force Act um, that allowed us to go into Afghanistan. That slippery slope bill that was only about six paragraphs long opened the door for endless wars in the Middle East. But everybody voted for it except for Barbara Lee. She was the single no vote. This bill, on the other hand, was so long and essentially was a domestic bill and had nothing to do really with things happening. I mean, it didn't have to do with enacting laws overseas or anything like that. It was about enacting laws here to loosen um, intelligence collection agencies restrictions. The Patriot Act was extremely long. Most of the people who looked at it, probably most of them were willing to sacrifice some civil liberties, but at the same time, they wanted to be able to make sure that it wasn't too much of a sacrifice and they wanted to be able to read it. Um, John Conyers later admitted that nobody read the Patriot Act when it was passed in uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 what was that interview with him where he admits that. And part of the reason we'll go into later of why that happened. So on October 3rd, in the middle of this Patriot Act debate that's happening, the first confirmed anthrax victim is revealed. Um, Robert Stevens, a photo editor for The Sun, in Florida. He goes to the hospital. Doctors held a press conference to confirm that he had anthrax. And when you watch the White House press conferences about it, they sort of try to downplay this idea that he that it is terrorism. It's actually interesting to go back to the very first official White House press conference about this. I think it's actually Tom Ridge who goes out there and talks about it. They almost suggest that, oh, well, maybe he went to a farm and interacted with some infected animals. And the, and the people in the press are kind of laughing because that's in the, immediately the first thing in their mind is terrorism. Because keep in mind that 
the first anthrax infection, when it was publicized on October 3rd, wasn't the first time that anthrax was being hyped up in the media after 9-11. You know, and you're thinking to yourself, maybe, well, that doesn't make sense. How did the press know this was coming? Did they have some kind of foreknowledge? That's where it gets sort of murky and, and strange. And that's, well, we're going to go into that more when we talk to Graham about his book. So between the 5th of October and November 22nd, 2001, five people die from anthrax infections. Most of them were assumed to have been infected by letters that came in the mail. On October 5th, Robert Stevens dies. He was 63 years old. Nobody's been able to prove that he actually received a letter that was addressed to him. On October 21st, a postal worker, Thomas Morris Jr., died in D.C. The next day, another postal worker, Joseph Kersine, died. Um, on October 31st, Kathy Nguyen died in New York City. She was a hospital employee. This one is completely inexplicable. On November 21st, Ottilie Lundgren 94-year-old lady in Oxford, Connecticut, dies from anthrax. Now, the FBI hasn't, was never really fully transparent with their investigation. They only showed us four letters that got delivered to different people. Um, they released pictures of those. We don't know for sure if these other people got letters or if the FBI just never showed those to us or who they were even addressed to in the first place. Or they could have been infected from anthrax that came out of letters that were sent to other people. So from the 6th to the 9th of October, Tom Daschle and Senator Patrick Leahy receive almost identical looking anthrax letters with actual written, handwritten letters inside a letter filled with white powder saying, you cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. Dated 091101 at the top of the handwritten letter. The Capitol Police immediately confirmed that it was anthrax. So this is when the government started pumping out the idea, you know, and the thing, obvious thing in everyone's minds that this was terrorism. Robert Stevens had just died the day before, but now it was a repeated, repeating event. So between, I'd say, this time period when, when uh, Leahy and Daschle received these letters... And November 1st, there was a bunch of innuendo put out by the Bush administration and other outlets, media outlets, um, not even generically conservative ones, but regular ones, and also neoconservative outlets as well. I'm going to name several people that were involved in spreading this propaganda. Brian Ross of ABC News, Richard Cohen of The Washington Post, uh, Dick Cheney, suggested publicly that anthrax could be uh, the work of al-Qaeda. George W. Bush made the same connection. James Woolsey was going out there trying to make the connection that Atta, Muhammad Atta, the lead hijacker of the 9-11 attacks, had a vial of anthrax and he got it from Iraqi intelligence officials. Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol of the Weekly Standard suggested that we have no choice but to destroy Saddam Hussein because the anthrax was most likely from him. Uh, Charlie Rose had segments on his show um, pumping this propaganda um, that anthrax came from either Al-Qaeda or Iraq. 
But what's interesting about this is there were contradictory stories coming out at the same time. Most of them seem to be emanating from either government officials or people who were somehow tapped into the Washington, D.C. establishment. But they were contradicting each other. There was actually a story as early as October 7th, I believe, where somebody reported that the strain of anthrax was the AIMS strain, which was a U.S. manufactured strain. The FBI started destroying stockpiles of the AIM strain to prevent more of it being sent out because that's how early they knew that it might be coming from inside the U.S. by not Al-Qaeda or Iraq, but by someone domestically. Even as early as mid-October, another story came out from an anonymous government official saying that it had U.S. fingerprints all over it, implying that the anthrax itself was sent by an American, and it was American-made. But at the same time, there was conflicting stories happening about how the anthrax could have been from Saddam Hussein because he has all these stockpiles of anthrax. And actually there was a chemical found in the anthrax called bentonite, which links it to Saddam Hussein. You know, the other stories were coming out at the same time from other anonymous government officials saying that, you know, it could be Muhammad Atta, um, one of Muhammad Atta's colleagues who's still on the loose. You know, maybe they, this is the crop duster plan and they couldn't get a crop duster. So they're just sending it through the mail now. So a lot of strange stories coming out. John McCain even went on David Letterman and suggested live on air that Iraq might be behind the anthrax attacks. So around this time period, late October, um, an anthrax scientist, a bioweapons scientist who worked for Fort Detrick, Maryland, um, bioweapons lab named Bruce Ivins started actually consulting and helping the FBI with their investigation into the attacks. On October 17th, 28 congressional staffers test positive for anthrax because of the ventilation systems. Uh, the anthrax was weaponized and so powderized that it essentially turned into like a vapor, you know, vapor-like consistency and went through the air vents in the uh, congressional building. On October 19th, the New York Times had a story suggesting the link between the anthrax attacks and the 9-11 hijackers without any evidence. On October 23, 2001, Ari Fleischer, the White House press secretary, suggests anthrax could be linked to international terrorists. And after Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy sort of backed down after they got sent anthrax about the Patriot Act, um, it passed on October 24, 2001. House and Senate passed the Patriot Act. Russ Feingold was the only senator to vote no on it. Literally. Tom Daschle and Leahy voted yes. And apparently no one read it. So in early November is when ABC News started pumping out multiple stories trying to link together Saddam Hussein with anthrax. And they were consulting with anonymous government officials as well. So it's interesting that at the same time these stories are being pumped out, there's still stories coming out in the New York Times and the London Times linking them to Al-Qaeda and not Iraq not making that connection between Iraq and Al-Qaeda even, not making that triangular attempt. Um, on November 8th, President Bush refers to the anthrax attacks as the second wave of terrorism. Quote, the second attack against America came in the mail. And as early as November 10th, 2001, mind you, this is right under two months after 9-11. The FBI is releasing statements to the press saying that they think that the attacks were caused by, quote, American loner. But this is all while the Bush administration is still trying to spin and plant stories linking Saddam Hussein to the 9-11 attacks. 
maybe at this point, this idea that the anthrax was connected to Saddam Hussein outlived its usefulness. Who knows? But as we see later in 2003, I believe, Colin Powell brings up again the anthrax at his plea to the UN to let them invade Iraq. And it was absolutely integral to getting us to transition and pivot from Al-Qaeda to Iraq. Another crazy player in, in this that's worth noting is uh, Judith Miller. And we're going to talk extensively about her in the following interview with Graham McQueen. But she was hugely responsible for sort of spearheading this anthrax propaganda and linking it to the individuals um, who whoever actually sent the anthrax that it was trying to frame for. So after 2002, not too long after the new year, a bioweapons expert is consulting with the FBI, a guy named William Patrick, and he sort of points to um, Stephen Hatfill. And he doesn't implicate Stephen Hatfill, but they find out that this guy who is basically Hatfield's mentor, William Patrick, he, when he brings Stephen Hatfield to their attention, the FBI uh, believes that he fits perfectly a profile that one of their FBI profilers already worked up on who was potentially responsible for the anthrax attacks. So that's when they started looking at Stephen Hatfield, March 2002. But strangely, in April of 2002, um, it was reported, but it was reported much later, uh, that Bruce Ivins, um, Fort Detrick, Maryland uh, bio bioweapons scientist, was consulting the FBI's investigation, and the FBI people in the FBI actually thought he was a suspect, but they allowed him to continue helping with the investigation, which is very strange. And then they also allowed him to continue having access to the lab for over six years, and uh, we're going to get there eventually. A couple months later, on May 2nd, 2002, there was an actual DNA test done on the anthrax that was used in these letters. The DNA analysis concludes that it most likely came from U.S. AMRID Laboratories, which is the U.S. Army's biological laboratory at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Now, there's been some debate later that this was actually false information, that they wanted to, that they were already trying to pin it on someone at Fort Detrick, so they so they concocted this. Other people have said that it's come from, um, it has fingerprints from other labs, actually. And that's details that I'm not super familiar with. During the summer of 2002, between May 24th and August 13th, it says on History Commons, this crazy, stereotypical U.S. government stenographer-style reporter named Nicholas Kristof for the New York Times, you know, Again, another paper planting government stories that's supposedly liberal. This New York Times columnist does a series of articles over the summer of 2002 suggesting that Stephen Hatfield is responsible for the anthrax attacks, all based on anonymous government officials' statements. He later made a public apology about it after they implicated someone for real. Um, much later, Nicholas Kristof apologized in an, in an op-ed for the New York Times. So during this period when, when innuendo is starting to come out in the press about Stephen Hatfield being responsible for the attacks, the FBI is harassing Hatfield's girlfriend. They search Stephen Hatfield's house multiple times, once on June 25th, where they actually tipped off the media to come and bring their news cameras to watch them raiding his house and going through his trash. 
It was aired all over TV. There were helicopter shots of the FBI agents rummaging through his trash and carrying boxes from his house out to their car. So for the next year or so, Stephen Hadfield is put under 24-hour surveillance by the FBI and essentially is harassed and just like intimidated continuously to most people looking from the outside that it was designed to intimidate him and break him into somehow having some sort of breakdown or confessing under duress, you know, giving some kind of false confession. He later said in a 60 Minutes interview that he was driven to suicidal thoughts by the way that the FBI was monitoring him 24 hours a day and the insinuations that were being floated around the media about him. It ruined his life. I think that says a lot that he was considering suicide during this period. The FBI and John Ashcroft go out on television uh, at the end of the summer of 2002, calling him a person of interest. They keep using that phrase over and over again, live on, on press conferences. The very end of the summer in 2002, director Robert Mueller prevents a criminal probe of media leaks in the anthrax investigation. This is from History Commons. There were FBI agents who wanted to initiate an in- internal investigation to find out who was leaking all this information about Hatfield to the press. Obviously, it was someone very intent on framing Stephen Hatfield for the attacks before the investigation was actually completed. Peter Jennings reported on ABC News on October 22nd that the FBI is very confident that it has found the person responsible for the anthrax, that person being Stephen Hatfield. But at the end of October, the interesting thing is while Stephen Hatfield is being smeared in the media by obvious media manipulation, people planting stories, planting innuendo before there were any proper criminal charges given to him, or rather any evidence really tying him to the attacks at all, while that was happening, the Bush administration acknowledged that the anthrax attacks were an important motivator in the U.S.'s decision to confront Iraq. Someone wrote in the Washington, this Washington Post article from um, October 28, 2002, that, quote, senior Administration officials say today that they still strongly suspect a foreign source, perhaps Iraq, even though no one has publicly said so. So this is their line. Even though they had no evidence to tie Iraq to the anthrax attacks, the Bush administration was holding on to this narrative and probably most likely was the one responsible for planting stories about Iraq being behind the anthrax in the press. Whether they had anything to do with framing Stephen Hatfield for the attacks, uh, who knows? It could have been some other faction of the U.S. government that was intent on doing that. But obviously there were already some internal shakeups if the FBI was upset that somebody was u- using their investigation of Stephen Hatfield to smear him in the press. Washington Post runs front page stories in the fall of 2002, basically like a total propaganda campaign where a bunch of these supposed experts who are all just think tank people are saying that there was obviously a state sponsor behind the attacks. So in reality, the Stephen Hatfield stuff in the media, it wasn't getting as much attention as probably this stuff was. Because this was around the time when they were starting to pivot towards Iraq, like for real, like starting to talk about Iraq's nuclear program and all that stuff. Now, this is an interesting one that I haven't really heard of before, but in looking back on the timeline of the anthrax attacks, um, from History Commons, it says, quote, In 2002, October 2002, microbiologist Perry Mycasell came under suspicion as the anthrax attacker. I guess this must have been the same time as Stephen Hatfield, some side guy that they were looking at also. Mycasell is an anthrax specialist who worked with Bruce Ivins and others at USAMRID and the U.S. Army's top bioweapons laboratory. He begins drinking heavily after the FBI starts suspecting him, consuming up to a fifth of hard liquor a day. 
One relative will say, it was a shock that all of a sudden he's a raging alcoholic. He dies in late October 2002. The relative will say, quote, he drank himself to death. His connection to the anthrax investigation will not be revealed until 2008, and it is completely unknown why the FBI was focusing on him. Two weeks before his suicide, Ivans will liken the pressure he is facing from the FBI to the pressure that had been put on Micasel. He will reportedly tell a colleague, Micasel drank himself to death. So already there is some interesting intimidation tactics and sort of a witch hunt going on with the FBI where already they've driven one of their suspects to suicide. And that echoes and mirrors what Stephen Hatfield said is that he was driven to suicide, but he didn't actually go through with it, but he thought about it. So in winter of 2002, right before the new year, sort of right during the the ramp up of Iraq war propaganda, Bruce Ivins mingles with FBI investigators during a search of evidence to connect Stephen Hatfield to the attacks. You know, the fact that the FBI is even still looking at Stephen Hatfield while the Bush administration is trying to tie anthrax to Iraq is strange in and of itself, but that they would let Bruce Ivins, one of their suspects, help them with the search is even stranger. But that's, that's, that really happened. So after 2003, on February 5th, 2003, is when Colin Powell made his infamous UN speech where he held up the vial of anthrax and insinuated that, A, he didn't say it outright, but that Iraq might have been responsible for the anthrax attacks, but B, that Saddam has so much anthrax stockpiles, the quote-unquote WMDs, that we have to stop him. The little vial he was holding up was the amount of anthrax in an envelope. They also showed slides of crop dusters, like supposedly dispersing biological weapons, which we'll talk about later with Graham in our interview. But that's interesting, too, because that was a, you know, another narrative they were trying to spin as well. So we're already in Iraq at this point. That was the only way they were really able to connect Saddam Hussein to the 9-11 attacks in Americans' minds is by sort of creating this anomalous connection between Saddam Hussein's bioweapons program and the anthrax that was sent through the mail, all the while the FBI is looking at American government scientists. So the Iraq war is already hugely unpopular by this point in 2006. At this point, the FBI is still looking at Stephen Hadfield, but Stephen Hadfield is already initiating a lawsuit against the United States government for smearing his name. They haven't officially dropped him off the investigation yet, but they like backed off on smearing him and he took an aggressive stance and he got really confident and courageous about it and actually sued the U.S. government. In August 2006, the, an FBI scientist claims anthrax used in the 2001 attacks was not weaponized, as previously believed. So essentially the FBI is trying to rewrite the story now and claiming that the anthrax in the letters was not the aim strain and that it might not have been weaponized. Because I think sending weaponized and obtaining weaponized anthrax and dispersing it that way would have required higher level clearance than Bruce Ivins had and more people than just one being able to do it. So I think at this point they were trying to rewrite the narrative so that they could pin it on just one guy. That was seemed like what they are already intent on doing. Um, on April 9th, 2007, we're gearing up to the 2008 elections now. Obama has already won the primary. He seems like he's got it in the bag. It's Obama versus McCain. You know, it's the Sarah Palin hype. All that shit was happening around this time. The prosecutors formally informed Bruce Ivins, uh, one of the Fort Detrick, Maryland scientists, that he is, quote, not a target of the anthrax investigations. They sent him a formal letter, actually. The letter's been released to the public. But something changes. 
In late autumn of 2007, from History Commons, it says that the FBI pressures family members of anthrax attack suspect Ivans, and Ivans begins drinking heavily. So, in a similar fashion to the, uh, the previous guy who drank himself to death with FBI pressure over being a suspect, Bruce Ivans was a former alcoholic and sort of relapses into full-blown alcoholism again. And his family is starting to be intimidated, just like the FBI intimidated Hatfield's girlfriend. Uh, they even visited uh, Ivan's daughter in the hospital and showed her pictures of dead anthrax victims. They tried to bribe his son $2.5 million reward for turning in uh, Ivan's. Right when the FBI is pivoted away from Hatfield and towards Ivan's, they totally cave and they exonerate Stephen Hatfield. And they also pay him nearly $6 million in a settlement lawsuit against the U.S. government. million to be exact. And the reason this is so significant is not because it was a huge embarrassment for the U.S. government. They they had to admit some culpa or guilt in ruining this guy's reputation and spreading this innuendo about him. But what was more important from that lawsuit was that part of the lawsuit, he also wanted to sue and have the government expose or the media organizations expose who leaked his name to these reporters? How did these reporters get his name in the first place? Who told them that he was a person of interest? So some of the actual journalists who spread this innuendo were put on the stand. But when it came to protecting their sources, they did. They absolutely refused to give up any of their sources. But instead, the U.S. government caved and they quickly ended the lawsuit and paid out massive amounts of money. You know, Stephen Hadfield probably still wanted to find out who these people were that ruined his reputation. But now he's sitting on a cool $6 million and it's kind of like, in a way, it's hush money, essentially. But good for him for getting the U.S. government to, to cough up that much money. I mean, they fucked up his life entirely. So right after this lawsuit, a propaganda campaign started to be sort of fomented against Bruce Ivins. A social worker in July 9th, 2008, starts to make claims about Bruce Ivins that he was violent and wanted to kill his co-workers. All this stuff never written down, never recorded. Apparently she was like a group therapy counselor and he said some of these things to her in group therapy, but she never bothered to tell anybody about it until after he was already declared guilty by the FBI. On July 29th, 2008, Bruce Ivins dies in an apparent suicide. The manner of his suicide was peculiar. Um, he overdosed on Tylenol with codeine, apparently. And him being a scientist would probably know that that would be a very painful way to go out because you would start overdosing from the Tylenol before you would start overdosing from the codeine. And he took a full bottle, apparently. That in and of itself is strange. And then the fact that actually bringing this guy to trial would have been fairly messy because even though there were having him under 24-hour surveillance, the best they could come up with was a few emails he sent to friends and colleagues about how he was depressed. One email he sent to someone a long time ago saying that he was really upset about the 9-11 attacks. So the, it's it's interesting that even though they've pinned it on him, they didn't really have much at all that was convincing. And then later they claimed that they actually had DNA evidence that pinned him to the attacks, that he had taken a flask home with anthrax spores in it that matched the strain that was found in the letters. But what happened was the FBI closed the case. They pronounced him guilty to the public right before Obama got into office. And the timing in and of itself was interesting when they sort of started to go hard at Bruce Ivins. 
Um, he commits suicide in the summer of 2008. And then in the fall of 2008, it's been sort of pronounced all over the media that he was uh, the suspect and he's guilty. And the FBI is doing press conferences. And a lot of people in the media actually seem really suspicious of it, how the FBI could have been so sure if all they had was really a circumstantial case. Because all they really did have in the end was a sort of weak circumstantial case. They didn't actually do any handwriting analysis of him. They admitted to prove that he might have written those letters because they're all handwriting, you know, handwritten letters that were sent out. And also the National Academy of Sciences, uh, the FBI passed on the DNA evidence investigation to the this unofficial government body called the National Academy of Sciences to match it, you know, to match up the DNA. The FBI just decided to close the case before the National Academy of Sciences could finish with their sort of you know, more thorough confirmation of the the supposed DNA evidence. So while the FBI is going around telling everybody in the press that they had a flask that matched with Bruce Ivan's flask to the anthrax used in the letters, they claim they had a DNA match. They were actually lying and they knew that it wasn't really a match or that it wasn't really scientifically accurate to say it was because they closed their case before they the independent body they had contracted out to confirm their research, they closed it before that company had a chance to actually finish their research. And what happened was, not to anyone's surprise, that this independent body, National Academy of Sciences, deemed that the FBI's DNA analysis was faulty, and that they could not confirm their results, and that there essentially was no way to trace back the anthrax used in the letters to any other strain. You could not trace it back to its source. So in a way, whoever thought of sending out whatever type of anthrax it was that they did send out um, was extremely smart in covering their tracks. Because when it came down to it, the person that the FBI was essentially trying to frame for the attacks, the DNA evidence didn't even hold up there. And in the same series of FBI press conferences and media appearances and, pr- and press releases that the media just more or less echoed, the FBI kept claiming that this this sort of complex circumstantial case against him. On one hand, it involved the location that the letters were sent from. They claimed that they were sent from a mailbox in New Jersey. And the reason why Bruce Ivins was tied to that mailbox is apparently, from what they claimed, is that a sorority that he used to stalk when he was in college was across the street from this mailbox. This was innuendo they put out that he used to like stalk and then another thing was they went through emails of his private emails. When you take all these different things into account, including the social worker's testimony against Bruce Ivins, that's the strongest circumstantial case they were able to develop. And if they already had their NSA wiretapping grid in place back in 2006, 2007, 2008, then you would imagine that they would have had access to all of his private emails if he really was the killer, and he really did talk to a social worker about how he was going to kill his co-workers, you would think that they could have gone on the internet and found Google searches he made. Other things that would incriminate him. Obviously, they didn't have anything like that, and that was the best they could come up with. A few vague emails about being depressed. That's it. So, using that line of logic, they had no case against him whatsoever. And then when you take into account the National Academy of Sciences debunking the DNA evidence... They had absolutely no leg to stand on. I, I guess one of the most interesting things to come out of this, you know, at the end of it all, was that, you know, for the first time perhaps ever since 9-11, the media seemed truly incredulous and, and 
in disbelief over the official story about what the anthrax attacks were all about. You know, after his death, when you watch news segments about that, the reporters are expressing sort of disbelief at the ridiculousness of the, the main suspect committing suicide. A couple news outlets really took it all the way. News outlets who were never friendly before to anything 9-11 truth related started to really drive home on all the anthrax inconsistencies to the point where you read between the lines, like in the Democracy Now! report about it, about Bruce Ivins' death. If you, re- if you watch the Keith Oberman specials about uh, you know, anthrax and Bruce Ivins, you really start to get the impression that they themselves believe that the anthrax might have been sent out by someone or a party of people who are were in the inner circle of the White House of the Pentagon, and then they were they somehow were able to frame Bruce Ivins for it, a man who committed suicide. And I think that was a really amazing thing that happened. In the end, the attacks were pinned on a dead man. And Stephen Hatfield happened to be someone strong enough to not cave, not back down, and eventually sue the U.S. government for millions of dollars. Bruce Ivins wasn't lucky. You know, they might have just finally landed on the right kind of target that they needed to sort of sew all this up into a nice, neat little bow. And later in the interview, I sort of speculated, well, you know, the timing of the Bruce Ivins death and you know, the whole press conference was really convenient because it was right before Obama got into office. So it kind of like reset the slate and and sort of, you know, make people think, okay, well, that was, that thread is tied up now. Okay, new president, memory erased kind of a thing. That was really the timing. And later on, another interesting thing that happened that really says all you need to know about this. A bunch of major newspapers actually wrote editorials, the staff of the New York Times, the staff of the Washington Post, a few other really prominent newspapers actually wrote letters demanding that they continue the investigation because they think that the FBI's case against Bruce Ivins was too weak, that it didn't hold up. Robert Mueller of the FBI was called in front of uh, the Senate, and Patrick Leahy, one of the guys who received an anthrax letter, told Robert Mueller of the FBI just straight up, he told him that he does not think that the anthrax case is solved, that he believes that others were involved, and he also implies that he doesn't even think Bruce Ivins might have been involved. And he says that other people can be found guilty of murder. He was one of the targets for that attempted murder. Tom Daschle was actually interviewed Someone asked him what he thought about the whole Bruce Ivins being guilty for the anthrax attack thing. He said that he was really troubled by it still, and he didn't necessarily believe that it was Bruce Ivins alone, or that it might not have been Bruce Ivins at all. So almost everybody involved in this, even people who were were in the FBI, still disbelieve sort of the official version of what happened. I mean, even the mainstream media didn't believe what they were being told by the FBI, and it was clear by these editorials that all these newspapers wrote. Russ Holt and a few other senators and congressmen tried to actually get funding for a new anthrax investigation, and they wanted to do a congressional inquiry into it. It never actually happened. An Obama official later came out and said that, in a private conversation with Obama, that Obama explicitly said that he would veto any attempts if they tried to bring some kind of a bill through that would allow them to investigate the attacks. He would veto the funding for it. So that's pretty much it. Let's move on to the interview with Graham McQueen now.
today we're going to be interviewing Graham McQueen, who wrote, as far as I know, one of the first books about the 2001 anthrax attacks that effectively destroys sort of the official narrative that we were told about those attacks. Welcome, Graham. It's great to be on your show, Robbie. Thanks. I wanted to congratulate you for being for being the first person to write a book like this. And you did an incredible amount of research and very thorough, I mean, combing through all the information out there because there's a lot of information out there that's hard to comb through. So, yeah, mm. hats off to you well, for, for doing all that. Thank you, Robbie. I appreciate that. As you say, there are a lot of books out there on anthrax, and just about every one of them is bigger than mine. <laughs> so <laughs> I... Uh, I kind of, it's its easy to feel humble, gee, you know, why did I even bother? But then the point is that none of those other books, as far as I could tell, uh, was willing, first of all, to really challenge the FBI head on. And secondly, to challenge the official narrative of 9-11 head on. I mean, I became convinced that, you know, if you accept the official narrative of 9-11, you are never going to understand the anthrax attacks. It doesn't matter how good a scholar you are or how many years you spend on it or how good you are at uh, um, figuring out bioterrorism. And you, you won't do it because 9-11 was a fraud. And although it may be unpopular in mainstream circles to say that, and you'll get called a conspiracy theorist, blah, 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 if you do say it. Nonetheless, it's true. They're, they are part of one operation, which we might call the... 9-11 anthrax operation. And if you don't get that, you won't get the anthrax attack. So although my book is little, I tried to be, uh, to pack it with facts and hard research and to really try and nail uh, a number of things that hadn't been dealt with properly before. Yeah. And I mean, you definitely accomplished that. Like you, you've always heard through the grapevine that, that Dashiell and Patrick Leahy were targeted for their obstruction of the Patriot Act or their vocal opposition to it. But you sort of unpack that in your book where, you know, on the surface, it doesn't seem necessarily obvious. Right. But you you did a beautiful job of sort of unpacking exactly why they might have been targeted. So stuff like that, I think, is really important because a lot of the stuff in the 9-11 Truth Movement, a lot of the things that you'll hear might not necessarily be backed up by fact, like they might just be, uh, you know, someone parroting something, right. something that they've heard before. But that's one of those things that, you know, at first I was like, well, maybe this isn't true. You know, maybe there's yeah. more to this, but it, it kind of is true. It's, it's one of those things yeah. that actually turns out to be true once you just sort of look at all of the details. Well, actually, Robbie, it sounds like you and I went through the same journey on the question of, uh, Leahy and Dashiell. I mean, I have to say that this book wasn't originally a book. It was more like um, an article, research article. And it wasn't, you know, it was too long. Eventually, I decided it was too long to be an article and not long enough to be a book. And I didn't know what to do with it. And Elizabeth Woodworth um, of 9-11 Consensus Panel said to me, oh, sure, it can be a book. You know, expand it a little bit and off you go. But the, the Dashiell-Leahy thing is a good example of an issue that I, I almost didn't touch at all in the first version, the short, shortened version of this book that I sent her out of view. And the reason I didn't say much about it is because the first time I looked at it, I thought that the standard thing that we're told about them didn't hold water. 
In other words, we're often told, as you say, in the 9-11 truth, that, oh, Alehi and Daschle, there are two Democratic senators who somehow opposed the Patriot Act, so they both got anthrax letters, and then they caved in and so on. And I thought, wow, if that's true, that, that, that's really important. So I began looking into it, and I thought, gee, and I think this is obviously your experience too, I'm not sure it is true. Daschle and Leahy both believed in the Patriot Act. They actually worked really hard to get it passed. Why would anyone, you know, why would anyone send them anthrax attacks? And furthermore, they had, they had completely already uh, kind of caved in and voted for it by the time anthrax letters arrived in their office. The crucial vote in Senate had already happened before, before their letters. You know, so it just didn't seem to work for me. And so I began backing off that, and I thought, Maybe the intention of the letters was much more general. Let's just send a couple of letters to to Congress, who cares who, really, um, prominent members of Congress, and, you know, put the fear of God into them. And Maybe there wasn't anything really meaningful that it was those particular two guys. But um, when that first draft of the book was reviewed by Clarity Press, they said, okay, we like the book, we're going to publish it, but there are a number of comments from from readers, and a couple of them said, you know, you don't go into the whole Patriot Act thing enough. And so I thought, gee whiz, I guess you're right. I'm going to go back, have a look. <laughs> so I thought, how am I going to do that? Well, Washington Post, Post is probably the most important paper because, you know, they're in Washington, and if there's anything happening to Congress, they're probably going to be the one that's going to cover it the most. And uh, so reluctantly, I spent months going through thousands of articles in the Washington Post trying to figure out a timeline. And of course, I used the History Commons project, which is very helpful. But ultimately, you have to go on and do your own work uh, in order to feel confident. And that's when I, I really thought, okay, you know what, there really is something to this. It's true that those guys didn't maybe stand up for uh, civil rights of Americans the way you and I might wish they did, but they didn't cave in completely, and there were times when they resisted. And when we look closely, we find that there's a startling moment. It's really on October 2nd, 2001, when they they put down their foot and they say, "No, I mean we're not going to we're not going to meet the deadline that Dick Cheney just set for us." You know, Cheney said he wanted it passed by October 5th. We're not going to do that. Because you know, you're pushing too hard, you're going too fast. And so guess what? Uh, it's just after that deadline is missed that they both get sent anthrax letters. And I do think it's meaningful, and I do think they were targeted. So I think there was a dual intention, you might say, in the letters. <clears throat> First of all, yeah, I do think they were targeted in a general way. That <clears throat> uh, The intention was to intimidate Congress in general, sure. Yeah. But I think... As I show in the book, the Senate was the crucial uh, house, not the House of Representatives. The Senate, where the Democrats had the one-member majority, and those were the two important senators that were holding it up. The other thing that I became aware of was that, you know, it is possible to scare the hell out of people and to scare the hell out of legislators and get them to go to war when they don't when they otherwise wouldn't and to get them to sacrifice their civil rights you can do that we know that now but we also let's put it let me back off a little it appears to be the case 
that this is a time-limited effect. In other words, if I scare you a lot, you may give up all kinds of things in the next few days, but as you recover your poise, get over your trauma, whatever it is, you will say, wait a minute, you know, I, I don't, maybe I shouldn't give up my civil rights. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so there's this uh, incredible urgency. There's, there's this sense, John Ashcroft is the most obvious figure here, the attorney general <clears throat> at the time who introduces the Patriot Act, he's nagging them and he's lashing them and he's criticizing the Democrats, going after them day after day after day. You just I tracked through every speech he gave at that time. <clears throat> and he won't let up. And Dashiell, in his, in, his, uh, in his own autobiographical account of those days, confirms this, <clears throat> that Ashcroft was basically blaming Democrats, saying, you know, there's going to be a tax on this country if you don't pass the Patriot Act immediately. And not only attacks, but they start saying biological attacks Jesus. or chemical attacks. And so, uh, yeah, I think that those two guys <clears throat> did prove themselves to be obstinate at a couple of moments. And, uh, you know, we have to give credit where credit's due. Um, and and, and I, I would look back and say, you know, at that brief shining moment, they were heroic figures. It might not have lasted as long as we would have liked, but <clears throat> they resisted uh, Mr. Cheney. Uh, some people call him Darth Cheney, and that's very, very dangerous. And um, and I think it was dangerous, and I think they could have paid for it with their lives. All excellent points. I mean, it, yeah, that it's not obvious at first glance why you know they they were such an impediment uh, to the Patriot Act, but they. They were at key moments. They would have prolonged the the voting process to a more basically a more reasonable um, time frame. I mean, uh, you know, apparently nobody we even had time to read the whole Patriot Act. I mean, it's sort of That's the right. the thing that you hear. And if you compare it to another speedy bill that was passed that's heavily associated with nine eleven as well, the AUMF, um, mm-hmm. which which allowed us to go into Afghanistan and then subsequently all these other theater wars. That right. bill was very, very short, right? Six paragraphs or something. So, right. um, yeah, it's interesting that not only were they able to get them to pass a bill that they didn't read, but they were able to essentially scare the internal government structure. Whereas nine eleven occurred in New York City and um, right outside of D.C., the Pentagon is technically in Virginia. It's really important, I think, to to always look at the 9-11 attacks as sort of a multi-pronged attack where this right. second stage of the attack was designed to scare members of government and also members of the press. Yeah, I haven't tried to decode that. Um, so I, I don't know if there were particular reasons why they went after particular people in the press. A really close reading of the attacks would try to ask in each case, you know, why did they go there? Why did they go there? But on the other hand, we also have to be careful we don't, um, you know, read significance into things where, the, where there isn't any. And this is, this is the challenge when we study these kinds of attacks. We want to do a close reading, careful reading, but we also don't want to project. For example, when we come to why did Robert Stevens die, this was the first anthrax, the first person to die from anthrax, and also the person, first person whose anthrax was diagnosed. So, uh, you know, it didn't become public knowledge until he 
was diagnosed with anthrax. Okay, he was a photo editor in Florida for a tabloid, not a very dignified tabloid, right? Uh, sort of National Enquirer level stuff. It's called The Sun. Um, now, some people have said to me, you never, you never explained why Robert Stevens got anthrax. I mean, why him? Why not someone else? And uh, I, I haven't tried to go there. You know, uh, it's possible that he was targeted specifically. Um, some people say, oh, well, he, he showed not very flattering photographs of Bush's daughters or something. I haven't gone there because I think it's too speculative. What, what I'm struck by is just that for some reason, somebody wanted to send letters with spores to that particular organization, America Immediate sorry, American um, Media Incorporated, that building, and there were a number of people exposed, and Stevens happened to die, and I don't know why. I don't know why specifically that place was targeted. But as you know from the book and from what others have said, there is a tie between those newspapers and the so-called 19 hijackers, and the most I can see is that somebody was trying to set up that connection so that we would all see that the hijackers were involved. Very interesting. We do our best to explain why a particular individual or organization was targeted, but in many cases, I don't want to go there because it's too speculative. Of course, uh, that's totally understandable. Was the letter sent directly to Stevens, or was it just sent to the Sun? And have we, we ever seen that letter? No, no, we don't know. That, uh, that letter has never been recovered. It was just, there was speculation. Because uh, it was some letter that, you know, uh, I don't even want to get into it. There's rumors about, well, it might have been this letter, it might have been that letter. But the truth is, we don't know. That letter wasn't found. But Very the interesting. Mail room, but the mail room in the building was contaminated. And, of course, there were several people in the building who got exposure. I believe there, was also, there were also some spores on Stephen's uh, keyboard, if I remember correctly. Um, so it's assumed that he got it from a letter. We don't have the letter, but if the mailroom is contaminated and so on and so forth, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, so maybe in retrospect, after these letters actually landed, that there was contamination found in the mailroom. So it makes sense that you know it could have come in the form of a letter. We just it was just never found. So that's right, and, and it's not the only case. I mean. Uh, several cases of people getting anthrax, and we don't know for sure where they got it. And uh, for a while, I was going to be very cautious. I wasn't going to talk about anthrax letter attacks at all. I was going to say, well, you know, anthrax attacks, we don't know if they all came from letters. Um, and that's true. We, we actually don't. But um, as far as we're aware, that's the only way they came. So we're guessing yeah, and I think that's a very important point to make because when you when we heard about the Bruce Ivins case or or you know the general FBI case involving the anthrax attacks, they seem to mainly focus on those four letters. And I mean, there seems right. there seems to be a lot of also different kinds of anthrax that were eventually yeah. discovered in these different letters, which which makes it even more complicated because if they're trying to pin this all on Bruce Ivins, then, you know, why was he, why did he have so many different variations of anthrax, including a very powerful weaponized 
form of inhalation right. anthrax and then another form that was kind of, you know, more amateurishly done. Right. So that, that kind of stuff is it's very interesting as well. Um, yeah, it is strange that he would have different uh, degrees of refinement and so on, and that he would also be sending around the threat letters. And But as you know, I, I just think the case... The case against Ivan's is uh, hopelessly weak. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, officially, I suppose, my my position would be, for sure, he didn't do it alone. You know, it had to be more people than, than just him. Uh, but but the truth is, I don't, I don't see any evidence he was involved at all in the, you know, I just, as far as I can tell, the guy's just plain innocent and um, has been framed for it, has been chosen as the lone nut of choice. And I think, uh, I mean, that's one of the things that made me angry. I suppose I had many motivations for writing this book, but <clears throat> one of them is that uh, I get very angry when people going around killing others, but I also get very angry when they take us all for fools, um, that we can't see through it, and I get very angry when they frame innocent people. So Bruce Ivins is dead. Uh, his reputation is in tatters. Um, his family has grieved not only from his death, but from the accusation by the FBI that their husband or father is the anthrax killer who murdered five people and you know, and for what? What did he do? I don't see it. I mean, I've read the I read the FBI's case against him several years ago, and I thought this is pathetic. Uh, it's a patchwork of. <clears throat> Weak circumstantial evidence, scandal, rumor, anything they can find against the guy. You know, if he likes sorority girls or something and is attracted to them, well, that must that must go into the bag. You know, must mean he's the anthrax killer. I mean, give give me a break. You know, or or, or he's you know he's a little mentally unbalanced. He's on medication. Who isn't? You know, I mean, again, <laughs> that, that that doesn't make you the anthrax killer. I'm sorry. And uh, I just thought uh, this is pathetic. If they can frame him for this, and we all sit around and let them get away with it, then they can nail any one of us. They can decide, oh, that Robbie Martin, you know, let's let's go get him. We'll call him a serial killer. And um, so I just think we have to stand up for people when they appear to be innocent and when they're being framed like this. Of course, especially when they're, when they're dead and can't defend themselves. I mean, it's, it's, it's very shameful. Um, I mean, it's even watching that FBI press conference where they're there presenting the evidence. It it almost seems like they're partially ashamed. I mean, I I don't, it's, it is really, it's, I mean, in a way it's sad. I mean, I don't, I'm not giving any slack to these FBI agents who smeared this dead man, but I mean, it's, I have, I have the exact same reading of that press conference, I thought to myself, those are guys who are embarrassed. They know they're wrong. They know that their arguments are weak. I bet you they went out and, and just got drunk on scotch after that. <laughs> you know, what have we gotten ourselves into? Yeah. We had to stand up there in front of the press and make fools of ourselves, defending the weakest case in the world. And isn't it convenient, too, that and correct me if I'm wrong on the timing of this, but wasn't Bruce Ivan's death right before the 2008 elections? Like, the, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't remember. I don't remember the relationship to the elections. It just that seemed like be, the, 
the timing was awfully convenient that it was just, you know, this unsolved case that was so related to 9-11 was just sort of wrapped up all nice and neat right before the new president got into office. But I'll have to go back and check on that. Yeah, well, timelines are very important, and that would be definitely worth looking into. He certainly died very shortly before he was supposed to be charged. And I think in these cases, they don't want trials. You know, Bruce Ivins, uh, David Kelly is a slightly different case, but another case of a bioweapons expert who supposedly suicided himself in the woods. This is in England, and he was clearly murdered. So, you know, it makes me angry. And I think it's it has to be taken note of because it's one of those signs of which there are many. It's part of the pattern as to how we know that something fraudulent is going on. Absolutely. And... One of the biggest things that that clued me in that something fraudulent was going on about the anthrax attacks was when I first started looking into the anthrax attacks, I I was totally floored um, when I found out that the Bush administration and most of his cabinet were were already on the anthrax. Would it it be correct to call it a vaccine or is it more of a preventative like antibiotics? It's an antibiotic. Yeah, it's not a vaccine. Um, and it's an antibiotic apparently that can be taken after you've had exposure or it can be taken preventively before you've had exposure. And in the case of Bush and Cheney going on on September 11th, presumably the argument would have been that, uh, well, we're giving it to them just in case, you know, there's anthrax around. Yeah. And, and it, this was on the evening of, of 9-11, apparently, that they were, they were uh, inoculated with, with Cipro. So I, I guess I'm curious, how important do you think that is in sort of un, unpacking all of, all of this? And is the fact that they were on Cipro before any of the anthrax attacks even got started, how significant is that to you? Well, I think it is significant. Uh, and I agree with you that, that we don't conclude that right away. We conclude that after a careful study. So if somebody says, oh, well, they were... They were put on an antibiotic on 9-11. We don't immediately say, aha, you know, that's proof. No, it isn't proof. We don't don't know at that point because I'm sure there are protocols. There are uh, rules, you know, and and for all I know, one of the rules is, well, if there's a major terrorist attack and the president could potentially be exposed to some pathogen, um, then we uh, preventively put them on an antibiotic and we keep them on it for a month. Sure, and that could be written in a rule book somewhere. I haven't seen it, but that makes sense. So the only way to study this is to see if there's a pattern, it seems to me. you know, Is there other evidence that corroborates the fact that this is fishy, you know, yeah. that, that this shows foreknowledge? And that's why I had a whole chapter on advanced knowledge of the attacks. <clears throat> so if you created a graph, and I haven't done this, I suppose it would be possible showing the, um, you know, how many people are taking Cipro in the United States. So this is ciprofloxacin, in case uh, the listeners don't know. It's a powerful antibiotic, and it was the one that, at least at that time, was the most strongly recommended uh, against anthrax, okay? So, um, if, if, we, if we saw that uh, the number of people taking Cipro went way up after October 3rd, we wouldn't be surprised. So October 3rd is when Robert Stevens 
uh, disease is diagnosed and it is uh, it is discovered that okay here is a man who has anthrax and there aren't a lot of cases in, of anthrax in the U.S. especially inhalation anthrax so this is scary and then, so he, he he's diagnosed on October 3rd it's announced publicly on October 4th he dies on October 5th those are those are crucial dates we would be not surprised, okay, if we had our graph and, and it shows a star, uh, sharp increase in Cipro uh, usage after that, okay? And there is. There is a sharp increase in usage. And there's all kinds of discussion in the press of Cipro, all kinds of controversies about people profiting and should it, you know, should it be made cheap, should it be made available. All that stuff happens. However, the odd thing that you would discover if you created that graph is that the um, number of people taking Cipro does not wait, <laughs> so to speak, till October 3rd or 4th. It starts going up a couple of weeks before that. And uh, as, as I've argued in the book, there's, this is quite open. I mean, this is around, around September 26th in the New York Times. They're speaking openly about a run on Cipro. And they're quoting druggists saying, we can't keep it in stock. They're, talk, they're using the phrase anthrax scare. And Maureen Dowd is writing an article for the New York Times saying that, um, you know, sort of upper class Manhattan women are carrying Cipro, but she's basically saying that that kind of baby bloom generation that, how does she put it, came of age with psychedelic frolicking, that presumably, <laughs> presumably that refers to me, is, <laughs> is poorly, you know, uh, poorly suited to understand uh, the reality uh, of life where Muslim martyrs, disper you know, dispense bioweapons. In other words, she's talking about a biological attack on the United States. She's talking about people in New York taking Cipro, and this is all happening more than a week, well, I guess it is about a week, before there's any, supposed to be any public knowledge that anthrax is actually being used. And again, this isn't, this isn't alone. There's a lot of advanced knowledge and several newspapers. Anthrax scare, anthrax scare. Imagine if people were putting anthrax around. What would that be like? Talk of anthrax goes back well before Maureen Dow. There's talk of it in the Washington Post on September 17th. In fact, there's uh, an article in the New York Times on September 11th, on 9-11, which says something like, fears of anthrax hang over uh, New York's east side, something like that. So, you know, this this anthrax thing is there right from 9-11 all the way through. People are taking Cipro, people are being scared, and there is no good reason for it. As I tried to argue in the book, it's not based on valid intelligence. And I don't think it's a, just a, a valid mistake either. I think this is coming from advanced knowledge. I think this is all part of the plan. And that, that it's in this context that putting Bush and Cheney on Cipro on 9-11 does seem to me to be significant. It, I don't think it's innocent at all. You know? And then, as you know, Cheney basically disappears from public view after 9-11. He goes into hiding. He goes into a so-called secure location somewhere. 
every now and then, you know, he comes out to give a talk at a white tie dinner somewhere or an interview on TV, but he is basically in a secure location somewhere throughout the, most of the anthrax attacks doing God knows what. <laughs> <laughs> All of these media officials seem to be peddling these anthrax fears before the anthrax attacks even happen. It seems fairly obvious that they were getting information from state officials to put this out there into the ether. But yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm just really curious as to why none of these journalists like Richard Cohen, who admitted that he was on Cipro before the yeah. anthrax attacks happened, or or this other person, Maureen Dowd, why haven't they been asked these questions? They, they, they seem like really important questions to ask. Like, what was your source, you know, for that, to talk about yeah, the Cipro absolutely. run? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think they haven't been asked because there hasn't been a sincere investigation. I think the FBI's main job has been to create a cover-up meaning that they are, formally, they are accessories after the fact. In other words, they have deliberately um, assisted with the covering up of a felony. The FBI, in both the case of 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, pushed everyone else to one side. You know, let's say you're a local cop, you, you feel you know your city well, you figure you're the guy that should be investigating this. No way, no way. You're going to be pushed aside by the FBI. It happened all over the place. They're going to come in. They're going to secure the crime scene. They're going to look into the whole thing. And if they don't interview Maureen Dowd, if they don't say to Richard Cohen, excuse me, you're telling me that a high government official told you to take Cipro well before the first you know, victim was diagnosed? Excuse me, who told you? And that could be, you know, that could be the path to the killers right away. I mean, <clears throat> to give him credit, Glenn, Glenn, sorry, Glenn Greenwald did say something like this about the ABC scandal right at uh, <clears throat> the end of October, the beginning of November 2001. ABC News comes out with this big thing. Oh, my gosh. Anthrax, the anthrax spores have been studied, and it turns out... <clears throat> They've been treated with this substance called bentonite. <clears throat> Excuse me, bentonite's form of clay. Now, bentonite, if you want to weaponize anthrax spores and add bentonite, uh, it's not a very common way to do it, and is the characteristic way, supposedly at least, of Iraq. So if you find spores with bentonite, it's like Saddam's signature. And so this was a very big deal indeed. And ABC, with Brian Ross as the lead journalist, said, oh, bentonite, <laughs> bentonite found in the anthrax spores. And they went on with this story for several days, and it got bigger and bigger. Three independent sources. Wait, now it's four independent sources tell us, oh, and by the way, Mohammed Atta, the 9-11 hijacker, uh, went to Prague and talk to an Iraqi official there. And so suddenly ABC is saying that Iraq was involved, apparently, in both the 9-11 attacks and the anthrax attacks. Well, of course, like so many of ABC's stories like this, it collapsed completely, and it turned out there's no bentonite in the spores. And even, you know, military sources in the U.S. said that, like the American... Institute of, um, sorry, what does it stand for? The American Institute, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, sorry. 
they examined the spores. They said, there's no bentonite in the spores, right? So anyway, um, Glenn Greenwald said, this is a huge media scandal. The fact that ABC would claim to have uh, all these independent, reliable sources for bentonite and to frame Iraq like this, he said, we have to go after them because if, if we can get them to reveal their sources, which they're refusing to do, who are these you know, so-called four independent sources? If we can find that out, we may find out who did the anthrax attacks. And I was glad that Greenwald said that. You know, in other words, the perpetrators are hanging around here and leaking this information. And they're not far off. It's quite easy to get to them. But did the FBI pursue this? As far as we know, they didn't. They didn't go after ABC and go after Brian Ross specifically. Um, and Brian Ross is the same guy who came out with this ludicrous tale of Janelle Bryant and Mohammed Atta. I talk about it in the book. They didn't go after Richard Cohen, who supposedly gets a tip from a high government, and go after any of these things. And that's another sign. Like if you're looking for uh, a list of signs of a fraudulent attack, these are the things you look for. You know, did the so-called perpetrator die before trial? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's one. <laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> Check, you know. And, and this would be another one. Are there obvious witnesses that were never interviewed? Yes. I mean, we go back to the JFK assassination. We have to check all these, all kinds of eyewitnesses that the FBI didn't interview. And they were absolutely crucial in that case. And then Oswald was killed in the presence of something like 75 Dallas police officers. You know, so if you take a case like that and you study it really carefully, you make your checklist, you say, how are these operations done? Then you come to a new case with a little more wisdom and knowledge, and you're able to perceive the fraudulent case more quickly. Absolutely. And as far as I understand, Brian Ross and these other journalists who were putting out this information... Uh, specifically the the information about Stephen Hatfield. Um, yeah. In, in court, they refused to give up their sources. And apparently one of the demands that Hatfield made in his lawsuit was he wanted to know, he wanted these people implicated um, uh -huh. as being the ones who leaked this information about him, you know, being a, a quote, person of interest right. in the anthrax attacks. But the government was willing to pay $6 million so they wouldn't have to disclose who any of these people were. So I think that's, that's Good a point. It's, it's a pretty, it's just, it's, again, it's just extremely shameful, blatantly obvious that they're covering up for at least some level of criminality. Brian Ross was, was one mm -hmm. of the main guys on in the media who was spreading these rumors about um, Stephen Hatfield. He even did a special on ABC News about these these bloodhounds that the FBI um, claims you know uh, detected the scent of um, right. of Stephen Hatfield and one of the anthrax letters and, th and that kind of crap. So right, it's yeah. now somebody needs to investigate Brian Ross <laughs> exactly in some detail and find out who's feeding him all this stuff because <clears throat> one of the things that's interesting about that guy is that <clears throat> even after the anthrax story was in free fall. In other words, it was clearly falling apart. It was clear that it was not Al-Qaeda. It was not Iraq. This anthrax came from domestic source. Because this, this was pretty clear, actually, by the time, you know, as soon as the Patriot Act was signed into law on October 26th, really the story started to collapse. But um, 
Brian Ross, <laughs> Brian Ross, whatever faction he belonged to, whoever it was that was feeding him this stuff, was was a real diehard. Because, you know, even after the story was in collapse, he comes out with this Benthamite story, which had no substance, so it couldn't, it didn't last long, but he, he made his effort. And then in the next year, 2002, the same group evidently used him to uh, sponsor the story about Muhammad Atta, the so-called head of the 19 hijackers, wanting to get a government loan so he could buy a crop duster plant you know, which could be used to spread biological or chemical weapons over the United States. This is Brian Ross again, who's the lead guy in that. Now, by that time, just about everybody had given up the idea that this was carried out by Al-Qaeda. But whoever it is that was feeding Brian Ross this stuff was, was really reluctant to abandon that story. And I think it would be quite fascinating to uh, subpoena him in front of a proper court proceedings and find out exactly who his sources were. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, it, but I, I always found it strange that it seems like there were different narratives being pushed that contradicted one another that were being pushed by people inside the U.S. government, different, maybe right. even different people. And I'm just right. wondering if, what your thoughts are on that, that there was this there were these, you know, dueling narratives of a, a, anthrax and Al Qaeda seemed like they merged at certain points, but then it was already being publicly reported in, I believe, late October that it had U.S. fingerprints yes. on it. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you um, on two points. First of all, that it's very confusing and very difficult to sort out. It took me a long time to come out with a kind of a narrative uh, about the perpetrators that I was reasonably happy with. Because if you read the newspapers uh, during October 2001, which is the hottest month for anthrax, you will find different theories and different stories and different perpetrators and a lot of conflicting, a lot of noise. And its uh, I don't claim to have it all sorted out. So um, there's a couple of possibilities. And one is that, as you say, there were different factions, and I would say quite explicitly different factions among the perpetrators, you know, in terms of what they wanted and who they wanted to frame and how they want, wanted that presented. I think that can, in fact, be perceived. I think, for example, there are some people in the U.S. intelligence community that are getting tired, including some people in the FBI, that during, as October goes on, they're getting tired of this fraud. And they're getting tired of this stuff about Al-Qaeda. They don't believe it. They don't believe the text of these letters. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. I mean, they're embarrassed by it. It's, it's absurd. It's like a Hollywood caricature of a Muslim extremist. And they also, they also concede that these spores are from a U.S. bioweapons laboratory. And so, you know, you have, you have actually articles in the newspaper in which it says intelligence sources who refused to have their names used in this article have said they think there may be a domestic source. So you do have people within the intelligence community starting to spill the beans and they make it impossible for the perpetrators to maintain their story. Eventually they come out of the woodwork and give their names. You know. So what does that mean? 
does that mean, for example, that the perpetrators, the neoconservatives that I implicate in this, who reach right up to the top of the executive branch of government, that they somehow didn't bring the FBI on board? Well, that, that's hard to believe. I think rather that they brought some of the FBI on board. They couldn't bring everybody on board. You can't go out <clears throat> if you're the head of the FBI and send a memo around to everybody in the agency saying, well, by the way, we're going to kill Americans with anthrax, and your job is to cover it up. You know, you can't do that. I mean, some people, <laughs> some of the agents are honest professionals. A lot of them probably are. And some, for that matter, are passionate idealists. You, you can't bring these people on board. You've got to somehow get around them. And they can, they can throw your whole story off if you're not careful. The anthrax uh, attacks are actually a really good example of where the operation does not work and where the story does fall apart. And I think it falls apart partly because there are people on the inside in intelligence agencies, in the U.S. military, who were not brought on board and who blew the story out of the water. And whether they did that, you know, consciously or unconsciously, I don't know. Did they know that other people in the agencies were were fraudulently, you know, involved in this thing? I see. I don't. I don't know that. I I don't like to speculate. All I know is that there's clear divisions. And the one one example I gave of that in the book was um, the uh, Robert Stevens case. That uh, basically Robert Stevens, the first person to die of anthrax, his family takes the U.S. government to court, and um, there turns out to be a division between the criminal law division and the civil law division in the Department of Justice, and the criminal division is saying Bruce Ivins was the anthrax killer, and the civil division is implying that he was not the anthrax killer. And we are told there were shouting matches in the hall about this. Well, that's an example of a division within an important uh, U.S. department, and I think such divisions are fairly common. I'm sure there are divisions on 9-11 as well. And it's too bad we can't exploit them a little bit better to make that narrative crumble as well. Yeah, that that part of your book about the Stevens uh, civil lawsuit blew my mind that that here we have the same, you know, a different branch than the FBI Mm -hmm. um, essentially saying that this that the Bruce Ivins case has too many holes in it to, you know, to actually show that the government was negligent because in, in reality, it's the government's not responsible because Bruce Ivins may have not been the killer because there's not enough right. proof. So that right. that's incredibly, um, it's just crazy. It really is, it is crazy. crazy. Yeah. And um, it's not much wonder that although Ivins was dead by then, his former lawyer, Paul Kemp said, you know, just, I mean, this shows how weak the case was against my client. This isn't just reasonable doubt. This is millions of reasonable doubts that have now been raised. And he's right. Yeah. And this is just a, a curiosity of mine that um, I, I'm curious why, you know, why nobody that was related to Bruce Ivins has spoken out or has or has gone. I mean, maybe maybe they have and I just haven't seen it. But like Bruce Ivins children or or anybody, you know, besides Merrill Nass, I think the the scientist who was his, one of his colleagues, mm-hmm. um, 
I haven't heard anybody who personally knew him sort of advocating on his behalf or saying anything really. So do you well, know? Uh, no, I haven't looked deeply enough into the Ivan's case to know the real answer to that, Robbie. So I don't know what his family is thinking or saying, or whether they're even interested in reading this book, whether they're open to these possibilities. Uh, I do know, though, that there were, there were lots of colleagues, scientific colleagues of Ivan's, who don't buy this story. <clears throat> they don't buy that he was the anthrax killer. So I think if you look into that one, you'll find he does have a lot of defenders. Yeah. Merle Nass, for sure, but lots of others. And, um, you know, like one of his former bosses testified uh, to, or I don't know if that's the right word, at least was interviewed by the National Academy of Sciences when they did their study of the anthrax attacks. And he, he just said there's no way he could have prepared this um, in, in this lab, laboratory, USAMRID. You guys, uh, you know, he, you're off by thousands of hours. You know, the the small number of hours that the FBI says he would have required to prepare this stuff is absurdly, absurdly off. He would have needed a year or something, not a few hours to prepare this stuff. And so there are actually, I think, a lot of people like that who don't think that Ivan's did it. Um, and it's it kind of makes me sad that they probably won't read my book because after all, I'm a 9-11 truther, I'm a conspiracy theorist, you know, they probably think, well, that won't help, Bruce. You know, what we want is responsible science. Well, what can I do? All I can do is tell the truth as I see it, gather the evidence, and, and then we'll see. I mean, I wrote a note to Ivan's previous, uh, to, to his lawyer, Paul Kemp, and said, well, here's the book. Naturally, I didn't hear from him, but, uh, you know, it's possible he'll read it someday. Let's face it, your book is just a compilation of a very important fact. Some of them right. that, that aren't that most people have never heard of before. I mean, I right. consider myself pretty knowledgeable about the anthrax attacks, but I was, I was astonished by how many things that you uncovered. So, I mean, you know, nine eleven truth and conspiracy world aside, I mean, your book stands on its own. And well, thank you, Robbie. I hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, and so, dear listeners, please go out and buy a copy. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Everybody needs to buy a copy of it. So, some of these journalists, um, specifically a journalist that a lot of people know of from the the Scooter Libby, um, Valerie Plame, uh, you know, CIA agent outing scandal, Judith Miller, um, she has particularly strange connections to aspects of the anthrax attacks, but also foreknowledge um, about the anthrax attacks. Can you, can you explain f for the audience a little bit what, w how she's connected? Yeah, I can give some general facts. Uh, I'm sure that a, a careful study of Judith Miller would reveal a lot of things that I don't know. Um, but anyway, she, she has pretty good neoconservative credentials. She co-wrote a book with Laurie Mylroy, um, who is... I'm sorry, she she co-wrote a book with her? Yeah. This is not the same as the bioterrorism book, is it? Or If you hold on a moment, I can find the title of it. Just really quickly about Laurie Milroy. I mean, she... Yeah. I was going to mention her earlier when we were talking about the warring factions right. that might have existed in the FBI. Right. There was a particularly 
interesting sort of what seemed like a warring internal faction at the FBI when the 93 World Trade Center bombings took place. Right. She she somehow got an FBI um, official to basically feed her all this information that Iraq was actually behind the 93 World Trade Center bombings, even though the Clinton administration was trying to pin it on bin Laden. But neoconservatives at the time were, were, were picking up all this information from people in the FBI. So it's interesting that those things happen where, you know, you have different people in the government trying to pin it on different. Well, I think uh, you're right. I think you're right. This is one of the um, conflicts that is going on within these groups. You have some that want to pull the uh, Al-Qaeda cars and some are determined to get Iraq. And that's why the double perpetrator solution seems perfect. They say, well, Al-Qaeda had the foot soldiers, but Iraq supplied them with the anthrax. Yeah, no, the the book that I'm talking about is called Saddam Hussein and the Crisis in the Gulf. And um, I think it was 1990. and it's, yeah, it's Judith Miller and Laurie Milroy. Wow, that's yeah. that's incredible. <laughs> it is incredible. This is like a small world. You kind of go, okay, I knew Laurie Milroy was incredibly important as a so-called intellectual um, for the neoconservatives and Wolfowitz and all these people and Richard Pearl. And, you know, they all kind of take off their, hand, their hat to her and, and use her material, even though I struggled to read one of her books on this and just gave up because, as you say, she's trying to blame Iraq for everything. All terrorism goes back to Iraq. But, you know, she she just disregards the fundamental principles of academic research. She makes claim after claim, you know, without documenting it properly. And so I just gave up after a while. I said, well, she's obviously a propagandist. She's an ideologue. She's not an academic. But anyway, she's an important person in terms of that whole movement to get Iraq and to get Saddam Hussein and to essentially destroy that country, which is what they've done. And uh, so to see that Judith Miller was co-writing a book with her back then, was it was kind of eye-opening for me as well. So then Judith Miller continues for years to write ver- various articles uh, talking about the danger of the dangers that the United States faces from Iraq. And uh, and this then culminates in the book, which she co-writes with two other people, um, and it comes out in October 2001, just as the anthrax attacks are becoming known. And this book uh, is about bile. It's called Germs, and it's about the danger of bio-warfare. And, you know, I would say Iraq and Russia are the two countries that are most thoroughly demonized as as the big threats in that book. And it's assumed that there's a connection between them and the huge Russian bio-warfare program is, you know, starting to transfer materials to Iraq. And so this is very dangerous. And, of course, this book comes out almost on the day when uh, Robert Stevens goes into hospital, this is the first anthrax fatality, and um, and the timing is astonishing, and <clears throat> so it, it promptly becomes New York Times bestseller. She is, of course, New York Times reporter at the time. So uh, right at that moment in history, when anthrax is being unleashed on the United States, 
a whole lot of people are reading that Iraq is the likely source, the most dangerous source of anthrax, with possibly Russia in the background. And um, that helps. It really helps to prime people for accepting the idea that this anthrax comes from Iraq and, uh, and the United States is clearly already making arrangements to invade Iraq illegally, uh, you know, and overthrow its government and just, you know, just cause havoc to the population there. So she's implicated in all that. Um, she also, three months before the 9-11, sorry, yeah, three months before 9-11 and before the anthrax attacks, she participates in this um, this military exercise or simulation called Dark Winter, uh, which simulates a bioweapons attack on the United States and which has uncanny similarities to the anthrax attacks that come three months later. She's participating in the exercise, playing the part of a reporter, which, of course, is exactly what she is. And then this strange... We, I used the term vertigo at one point to suggest the feeling I get when I look at this because, you know, you feel dizzy. You can't figure out what part is simulation and what part is reality. So she participates in this game or simulation. Then she writes a book which comes out just as this real anthrax attacks are happening. Then she gets a letter at the New York Times, October 12th, with white powder in it, saying, you know, with threats. And this is right in the middle of the anthrax attack. So, of course, everyone's worried, oh, my God, the New York Times has been attacked with dust powders all over the place. Turns out it isn't anthrax. Uh, it's fake talcum powder or something. But in my opinion, um, it is part of the anthrax operation. It's one of three threat letters which share similar handwriting, and so on, and they come from their postmark in St. Petersburg, Florida. I believe they're part of the operation. So what the heck is Judith Miller? She's, she's in a simulation, and she's in, involved in the real thing, that, or is the real thing real, or is it a simulation? And then she keeps going on, of course, writing articles blaming Iraq. Uh, she parrots some of the stuff in a, in a rather cautious way, the ABC stuff about bentonite. Um, and she is widely known as one of the people who helped prepare the ground, helped prepare the American people for an invasion of Iraq by talking about how dangerous it was and its weapons of mass destruction and so on and so forth. And I mean, the New York Times seemed to, to be very keen on her and all these stories about the danger of Iraq and everything. They didn't, they finally cut her loose after some years when when her stories were shown to be empty and fraudulent and so on. But for a long time, she was riding high, and she was a major person. She was on the ground in Iraq, bossing around U.S. military officers when they were looking for WMD. And I have to ask myself, what's that about? At what, you know, at what point does a, a reporter get to order around these people? Or is it possible she's not who she seems to be? You know? Oh, she definitely, I mean, from everything I read about her, she seems like she's a lot more than a reporter. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. And, and I don't like to speculate publicly about who, who she may really be. I mean, if you, if you look up 
Judith Miller, you find lots of bad stuff, but a lot of it's catty, gossipy stuff from other reporters who just who just didn't like her and said nasty things. I, I couldn't care less about that stuff, but I do care about who she really was. I mean, this, this woman uh, was one of that party that bears responsibility for the crime of aggression, which is the illegal invasion of Iraq. For, for that's, that's a major crime. It's, it's hard to find a, a, a worse uh, international crime. It's up there with genocide. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I think all these people should be investigated, you know? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I wanted to, I wanted to mention a few things about her that, that I recently found out, mm-hmm. um, uh, just last week, um, after someone saw my, my anthrax film, they gave me a copy of a, of a New York times article from November 9th, 2001. And it's written by Judith Miller and a couple of other people. Mm-hmm. And in it, she says, quote, Several weeks ago, the FBI said it had no object- objection to the destruction of a collection of anthrax samples at Iowa State University. Right. But some scientists involved in the investigation now say the collection may have contained genetic clues valuable to the criminal inquiry. So that's, that's really odd that right before the attacks happened, they, all these samples of, of anthrax were destroyed inexplicably. Right. And and then of course she's the one writing about this. And then another very strange thing about her is she was apparently part of this think tank called the Aspen Institute, which also had members of the Bush administration in it. So it it was it had Dick Cheney in it, uh, Wolfowitz was in it, Scooter Libby was in it, mm-hmm. Philip Zelikow uh, <laughs> was in it, and so was Prince Bandar. Oh, that's and, interesting. I'm I'm sorry that I missed that. That. That really does sound important. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I haven't been able to find out too much information, but the but the this think tank became known from a very obscure part of the Scooter Libby trial, where apparently, and if anybody doesn't know, Scooter Libby was implicated in leaking Valerie Plame's cover, or you know, leaking the fact that she was a CIA agent through the proxy of Judith Miller writing in, in the New York Times, but Judith Miller sat in jail because she refused to give up her source, which apparently was Scooter Libby or someone else in the Bush administration. And while she was in jail, um, Libby wrote her a letter that says, quote, it's a very bizarre um, statement he made to her. And that, and what he said was, quote, you went into jail in the summer. It is fall now. You will have stories to cover Iraqi elections and suicide bombers, biological threats in the Iranian nuclear program. Out west where you vacation, the Aspens will already be turning. They turn in clusters because their roots connect them. Come back to work, to life, end quote. So I hadn't heard that before. That does seem like there's a lot of messages being given there. Yeah, very, very peculiar. So... She she's definitely someone that don't forget you know, her connection also to David Kelly. <clears throat> um, oh, I didn't. I'm not aware of that. Oh please, yeah, she please was explain a friend it. of David Kelly. One of the last emails he sent. So just for your listeners, this is the uh, biological warfare expert in the United Kingdom in the UK. Who, yes. Uh, who basically, in an interview with the BBC, he was an unnamed source. He kind of blew the whistle on them and said that the 
Blair government was using was exaggerating the threat from Iraq. And that was extremely embarrassing to the Blair government. So they went and exposed him. Um, they eventually got his name and said it publicly and uh, hauled him in front of a parliamentary committee where they uh, interrogated him. And then he died uh, about two days later in the woods. And this was said to be suicide. He had taken an overdose of pills and he'd cut his wrist. And, and um, well, so just, wait, just for clarification, he, yeah. he never came out. Uh, he was he he said this anonymously, but they still figured out who he was. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I didn't I did not know that. Yeah, and and he was an acknowledged expert in bioweapons, and so uh, so he supposedly killed himself. Well, <clears throat> we we don't need to go into the details now, but there's been a lot of work done on that and on the um, pathetic uh, Hutton inquiry and its superficial examination of this so-called suicide. I, I would say there's no question he didn't he didn't kill himself, he was killed. And there are a lot of people, including people in high places in the UK, who, who believe that to be true, including some members of parliament, including prominent physicians who've tried to get uh, <clears throat> further inquiries and so on. So anyway, my point was the David Kelly death is really important in uh, trying to figure out this whole thing. Here's a man who in his own kind of backdoor, tim- perhaps rather timid way, was a whistleblower, and he paid for it with his life. So, yeah, he knew Judith Miller. He regarded her as a friend, and uh, I hope he was right, but I-, I worry about that. One of his last emails before that fatal walk in the woods was to Judith Miller, in which he said there are many dark actors at work here playing games. Wow. And, uh, and, then, and then, you know, a couple of hours later, he's dead. Um, so w- what does that mean? Does that mean anything bad about Judith Miller? Well, I don't know. I, I don't want to claim more than I know. It's just that she is a very uh, strangely connected person. Yeah, absolutely. And there, yeah, there needs to be more more research done on her as far as her association to all of this. Mm-hmm. Let's go into this idea that um, that there was, it seemed like at the very beginning of when, when Robert Stevens uh, was diagnosed with anthrax, that there may have even been an attempt to connect um, the perpetrators, the alleged perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks, some of these hijackers, with the actual anthrax yeah. itself. Yeah. And I wanted to know uh, what, what those connections were. It's important because... Um, if we're wondering what the connection might be, if any, between the 9-11 attacks, the connect, the, probably the most important single link is the so-called hijackers, these 19 young Arabic-speaking men. So uh, we start with the most general evidence, and that is that when the anthrax letters start appearing, uh, some, of their being, some of them are coming from locations at least in a general sense, where the hijackers were known to have lived. And this is not something that I'm kind of making a big deal out of. It was a good deal was made of it at the time. In other words, the reporters and the investigators at the time, and this at the time mainly means October 2001, could see this and they, they note it. This is noticed, in, this is taken note of in the newspapers. It's like 
gosh, you know, this area of Florida where the hijackers were hanging out, and suddenly, you know, there's people dying. There's, you know, the, the Robert Stevens dies right in the middle of this area where the 19 hijackers were hanging out. And there's also hoax letters coming from St. Petersburg, Florida. What's this about? So that's weak circumstantial evidence. I mean, we can't really go anywhere with that. But what you do when you get evidence like that is you look more closely. And that's what some people were starting to do in the fall. So they look more closely. So they say, well, where did Robert Stevens, this is the first fatality, okay, from Andra, where did he work? Well, he worked at American American Media Incorporated. I keep getting the name wrong. Anyway, he worked for The Sun, which is part of that corporation, in a particular building in Florida. And the building is found to be contaminated. Not just his office, but there are other people who were exposed to anthrax. And then they look a little further and they say, well, gee whiz, you know, they, the manager, that's not quite the right word, I forget the word, um, the CEO, whatever, uh, of, of this organization, is married to a woman named Gloria Irish, who knew the hijackers. She knew several of the hijackers. Okay, now this is starting to look really fishy. This isn't, now we're not just talking about, well, letters came from Florida. We're talking about a very specific personal connection. So Gloria Irish, the wife of the head of this, of the son, where Stevens worked, was a real estate agent. And she found apartments for two of the hijackers. One of them, Marwan al-Shehi, was a major guy. He was like, Muhammad Atta's right-hand man. While Atta was flying a plane into one of the World Trade Center, uh, supposedly one of the buildings, uh, Al-Shehi was supposedly flying the other plane into the other of the Twin Towers. And they had known each other way back in Hamburg and all this kind of stuff. And Gloria Irish is finding an apartment for him and also for another hijack. And the more we look into it, we find... Wow, there's even more connections. It turns out that one of the apartments she found for these guys, the FBI manages to connect to nine hijackers. So that wow. the, Yeah, so this is now being discussed. This was discussed at the time in the Florida media. I think it was the St. Petersburg Times. Which has, you mean they were drawing a connection between yeah, yeah, St. anthrax Peters, and... Yeah, St. Petersburg Times was saying, this apartment building... <clears throat> um, was was has a connection to nine of the nine eleven hijackers, and now we have to figure out whether it was also the center of the anthrax attacks. I mean, it seemed clear this was a link. <clears throat> How could it not be a link? I mean, Gloria Iyer seemed to be to directly, and here she had found she was the real estate agent of two nine eleven hijackers, and she was also the real estate agent of Robert Stevens. She had found his home for him. This is the guy who. Okay. Yeah, who died from anthrax, right? Yeah, I was just going to ask you if she was directly connected to oh, him. Yeah, she Here's my answer. Him. Oh, she, yeah, she and her husband, Mike Irish, had known Robert Stevens for like 20 years or something. And she'd found him his house. And the, so at this point, you're going, wait a minute. <laughs> this doesn't sound like coincidence. <laughs> and uh, as I say, the, the more you look into that Florida connection, the more this it keeps going on. That there are 9-11 hijackers, are living and working out in gym, the same gym that many of the people that went to the sun where Robert Stevens died, you know, and then, you know, uh, 
Robert Stevens lived here, and Mike Irish lived there, and it's all starting to to look like, okay, this can't be coincidence. Um, and there are a lot of connections between the hijackers. Then we have another hijacker who, and I'm using the term hijacker in quotation marks, as you know, if you read the book, I don't, think, these, <laughs> I don't think these guys hijacked anything, but they're, but they're the guys who were running around like a troop of actors making themselves very visible in the months before 9-11. So one of them shows up at the doctor with a big black lesion on his leg which subsequently some doctors say, you know what, that sounds like that sounds like cutaneous anthrax. And another one of the hijackers goes to the doctor, or, or perhaps it's the pharmacist, he's got really irritated hands, and, and later it said, oh, well, I, we know what that was. That's the chemicals you get when you, when you work with biological weapons. And, and then there's this report that the CIA had been following Mohammed Atta, as he you know, was in Hamburg and he was buying all these chemicals that you can use to make biological weapons, then you have a whole set of stories about the hijackers investigating crop duster planes in Florida. And crop duster planes become a really important thing. That's why I talk about them in the book. I mean, these are planes which can disperse biological or chemical weapons from the air and, in theory, kill a very large number of people. And crop duster planes, suddenly there's all these stories that these Muslim extremist guys, uh, some of whom are clearly the, belong to the same group. Muhammad Atta is identified uh, quite firmly as one of the guys who goes to this crop duster place in Florida. This is all before 9-11, of course, investigating these planes and wanting to get in and try them and asking how much material they carry. And then we have the more, even more specific and absurd story about how Mohammed Atta goes into a government office and, and asks for a $650,000 loan so he can buy a plane and modify it so that it will become, <laughs> this is my term, not his, but the mother of all crop testers. <laughs> It'll have this huge tank so that he'll be able to do all his crop testing in one flight. He won't need to land. And, you know, this loan officer is listening to him and say, what's he talking about? You know, this won't even fly this plane he's talking about. And she says, well, I'm not going to give you $650,000. You need to apply for it. And you're not a citizen. And so then he starts threatening to cut her throat. And, and the whole story is absurd. And of course, Brian Ross from ABC is involved in it again. So if I were to summarize, what am I saying? I'm saying that there's a whole set of stories that connect the so-called 9-11 hijackers to biological weapons. Somebody is laying down a trail, and this is before 9-11, trying to tell us that the guys who would ultimately be accused of the 9-11 crime were very, very interested in carrying out a biological attack on the United States. This is setting the stage, in my opinion, for the one-two punch, you know, the one-two punch story Punch one is 9-11, punch two is the anthrax attacks. Same guys involved in, the, in both, right? Yeah. Same guys. And, the, only, and the, way, the way Iraq comes into this is that if you're going to use a crop duster plane to deliver anthrax, you can't be a few little guys with a tiny little lab in Afghanistan. You need the capacity of the state behind you. You need somebody who can supply you with huge quantities of anthrax. 
And that's where Iraq comes in, and that's where the whole other set of stories come in, which claim that Iraq was developing crop duster planes to disperse anthrax. So there's all these elaborate stories, these elaborate, tra elaborate trails being made that we're all supposed to follow so that we'll conclude eventually that Al-Qaeda and Iraq work together, and that's who did both 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. And, of course, it's all false. It's all false. Iraq had no anthrax to speak of by this time. They had destroyed their stocks in 1991. So I don't know if my little ramble there is going to be clear to people or not, but what I'm trying to say is that these 19 hijackers were not just being framed for 9-11. They were supposed to be central also to the anthrax attacks. That was the intention. Yeah, it it is a very interesting angle to look at all this because I I'd never really I heard of the crop duster story, but I didn't really realize how often that story was sort of pumped out to the masses. I mean, even Bush, you have a quote in your book, yeah, where Bush says something like, "If you see someone getting into a crop duster that doesn't belong to them, you know, notify the authorities or something bizarre." Yeah, exactly. And and I'm looking at. Um, on and they grounded, one... they grounded all crop, crop tester planes in the United States. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so, I mean, right, you know, shortly after 9-11. Yeah, and, I mean, if you actually listen to, I think, was she was she an employee at the U.S. Department of Agriculture? That's right, Janelle Bryant, that's correct. Yeah, if you, if you watch her reiterating the story about meeting Muhammad Atta, it's, it either seems like he is diagnosably insane like right. he is men mentally ill crazy right. or he's intentionally trying to draw attention to himself i mean right. it's 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 so absurd what he says in her office and he even asks to buy a copy of a picture of washington dc on her wall and then start talking to her about bin laden all in that's the same right. visit so that's right he brings in the world trade center he brings in the pentagon he brings in bin laden he, you know, he gives his name and he wants to have a crop duster. He just lays it all out. And, and so, yeah, you're right. Those are the options. I mean, here's a guy who supposedly committed one of the most successful mass murders, or I suppose the most successful in American history. So he, he, he's either the most clumsy and insane guy in the world, in which case, how did he pull this off? Or else he's a fraud. And and on on page one sixty eight of your book, uh, the two thousand one anthrax deception, you also mention that um, Colin Powell, in his slideshow to the UN trying to justify the Iraq invasion, there's even a picture in this slideshow showing a, a plane dispersing an anthrax-like substance. That's right. You know, along with all those other ridiculous slides of the of the, you know, the weapons labs on railroad tracks and stuff like that. That was that was one of them. And I didn't even remember that until you brought it up. And it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah this is the famous, famous fraudulent presentation to the U.N. Security Council before the invasion of Iraq. And I decided that we would include. <clears throat> well, I decided in consultation with Clarity Press that we would put a photograph from that presentation on the cover of the book. So the cover of the book has Colin Powell holding up the little vial of simulated anthrax with which he tried to deceive the UN Security Council before committing a war of aggression against Iraq. And I, you know, at times I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't do that because Powell is not quite as extremist as some of these guys, Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and so on. But then I thought, 
you know what? He participated in that fully. And um, in the book, I mentioned that the Center for Public Integrity in the United States counted the false statements made by um, administration, Bush administration officials in the two years between 9-11 attacks and two years after that. They counted the number of times they made false statements uh, about Iraq and on two subjects. One was Iraq's possession of WMD, and the other was Iraq's relationship, alleged relationship to Al-Qaeda. And the total number of false statements was 935, which is a figure that I think every American should have in their head. 935 false statements used to frame Iraq, you know, illegally and criminally. And when they counted the, the number of statements, um, you'll have to check this because I don't, I don't remember. But my memory is that, um, that Powell was number two among the officials in terms of the number of false statements he made. And I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to protect the guy. He may not be as much of a fanatic as Rumsfeld and Cheney, but he was fully implicated. He allowed himself to be fully used. So put him on the cover, for heaven's sake. There he is invoking the anthrax attacks in 2003 before the invasion of Iraq, reminding people that this amount, he says, this little amount in the vial here was enough to close down the Senate, the heart building, and make the Senate evacuate the building in 2001. By then, he knows Iraq had nothing to do with that, of course, and he's not going to actually come out and say Iraq did it, but he's invoking it. He's, he's reminding people of it. He's using it, and this is classic propaganda, classic propaganda. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really important point. And the, the key thing, I think, I'm just going to quote your book here because yeah. I have it in front of me, yeah. is that Powell did not claim Iraq was responsible for the attack on the Senate, but he made sure Iraq, anthrax, and the Senate were all mentioned together. That's a really important aspect to all this because you could go back and you can't really point... I mean, you could, you can in some instances, like the aluminum tubes, right. um, those kind of things. But even still, a lot of these connections were intentionally vague and sort of anomalous so that just the, you know, in your mind, you can make these connections, but there wasn't anything specific to point to. I mean, they right. didn't have any specific evidence. Um, and I think Colin Powell deserves being on the cover of your book simply because as you said, he, you know, he maybe wasn't as extreme as these other people, but in, in a way that, that almost seems worse to me that he was willing to do this yeah. to present all this propaganda when he probably, you know, it, it was like, and I've read this and I've, and I've heard Lawrence Wilkerson talk about this. He apparently wrote that speech for Colin Powell and, and he's explained it, that the reason why Powell was chosen is because America Democrats as well had a lot of trust in Colin Powell because right. of, because he was in the Clinton administration. Um, and that's, and, and it's, it's, yeah, it's absolutely shameful that he, that he did that and, and sort of used the trust, you know, America still had sort of in him as a government official to, to sell us on that. That's right. Um, and these processes continue till today. And, uh, and that's the other thing to say, of course, is that, it isn't just a matter of the anthrax attacks as part of history or 9-11 as, you know, part of history that people are forgetting now. It's that this, the deceivers have not been apprehended. They have not been called to account. And we continue to get one story, false story after another. 
And so there's a good chance the U.S. will become involved in a really nasty situation in Syria and possibly with Iran. They're also involved in an extremely dangerous standoff in Ukraine. In my opinion, none of these are necessary. This is the last thing humanity can afford to be doing right now when we face such severe uh, challenges in the coming years, most of them having to do with our relationship to the environment. The last thing we can be, should be doing is fighting these stupid wars. And yet this body of deceivers is still in there pulling the wool over people's eyes and getting them geared up for war and all the rest of it. And that's why I think it's very important to expose them. 9-11 researchers and, and quote-unquote truthers have, have spent a long time focusing mostly on 9-11, mm-hmm. um, mostly on the, the demolition of the, the World Trade Centers. But why do you think it is that, you know, as you've said, anthrax was the, you know, the second of the one-two punch. It, I, I like to describe it all in a similar way that it was almost like the knockout punch right. um, after 9-11. And why do you think that so much of the, you know, of, of so much of the alternative media world, people who are friendly to, you know, 9-11 truth, why, ha- why haven't they focused on this more? And why haven't more truthers um, been delving into the anthrax attacks and trying to associate it, I guess, as a multi-pronged attack with, with 9-11? Well, I don't really know the answer, Robbie. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> sorry, the rather small band of anthrax researchers um, and we're we're two members of that small band. Have got to, <laughs> and we've got to try and change that. But I guess there are a few obvious things. One is 9/11 was far more dramatic. I mean, it was the ultimate theater. It was the ultimate snuff film, if you like, in which actual human beings are are killed on camera. I mean, it's horrendous, um, traumatizing, um, dramatic event. Um, I keep thinking violence, the drama queen, here it is, um, and <clears throat> stole everybody's attention. And, of course, large number of casualties, roughly 3,000 immediately and a great many more later. You know, some dying from what they inhaled on that day, and some from suicide and trauma, and then, of course, all the people abroad that were killed in the various U.S. invasions. So you can see why people would want to really fix on that crucial event. And also, 9-11 was used and still is used to justify all these other things, Um, whether it be stealing civil liberties or attacking this or that country. I sometimes cynically refer to it as the gift that that keeps on giving. You know, it, 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 you know, they're still using it, you know, to attack Syria and everything else. So I can see why people would focus on it. What is the anthrax? How can the anthrax attacks compete? You know, five people die as opposed to 3,000. Uh, it occurred over a long period of time rather than in a big dramatic public, you know, thing. And I think also a lot of people in the 9-11 truth movement probably haven't looked into it very much, and they hear that, well, you know, the FBI solved that, you know, they found the guy, and and so on and so forth. Well, of course, you and I think they didn't find the guy, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of important, and I think we also have to remind them that the anthrax attacks were not trivial. They were not small. 
they were used very directly and powerfully to get that Patriot Act passed. And they were also used to help legitimize the invasion of Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq. They were not trivial. The only reason, and, and the other thing about it is that the only reason I think people think they're trivial is because the FBI and other agencies have been working very hard for years to sweep them down the memory hole, you know? Because, of yeah. course, yeah, well, the story failed after all. It failed. Um, and they weren't able to frame the right people for it. So then it becomes necessary to make everyone forget about it. Oh, it's trivial. Oh, it's just a guy, just a guy, a lone nut somewhere. It doesn't tell us anything about the system. And so people don't look at it. And I think it's part of our task is to say it's really important. It's really important. I mean, this was weaponized stuff. Don't forget about the FBI says this was weaponized anthrax. And that means that a weapon of mass destruction, the famous WMD, was used. Forget about it, it might be used. It was used in the United States in 2001, not on 9-11, subsequently to 9-11. And there was an attempt to blame that WMD attack on these foes of the United States, Al-Qaeda and Iraq, right? And, yeah. and that it's really important that we remind people of that. Yeah, and my whole thing about it is, it's, it's, yeah, the 9-11 is the gift that keeps on giving because they could always mention it um, as a reason to enter into any new, new military, um, you know, a bombing campaign, theater war, yeah. um, even sanctioning different countries. Um, but they can't mention... You know, Obama and Bush couldn't stand up there and say, well, remember, you know, the we got attacked by WMDs, when, you know, in October of 2001, right. because they finally admitted that it was, you know, a, a quote unquote inside job, you know, yeah. from from it had U.S. fingerprints on it. So but what's interesting to me is I still I guess I still see 9-11 and anthrax linked in such a a, a strong way because we can't even though they they finally came out and said it was Bruce, you know Stephen Hatfield and then Bruce Ivins even though they did that the immense fear that was created in the american public by that knockout punch yeah um it, it we we can't go back from that so like like imagine if 911 was an isolated incident and nothing else no other subsequent you know attacks or anything happened after that i really truly believe that we wouldn't have been able to have this kind of leverage um, right. that we do. Right. I think that even though 9-11 was, was way bigger, way more people died, it was that combination that really took the fear levels over the top. And, you know, people in New York City and on the East Coast were probably afraid or people who lived in metropolitan areas, you know, maybe the, you know, terrorists will fly planes into our buildings. But I don't think people, you know, like in the suburbs or in rural areas in the United States were personally that terrified until right. the anthrax attacks because right. then that then that meant that you know you're opening your mailbox could be absolutely. potentially deadly so absolutely no i completely agree with you Robbie. completely agree um no, i'm just i was just trying to put myself in the in the shoes of people who've been ignoring the attacks the anthrax attacks i was trying to figure out how they're justifying that to themselves but yeah. I, I i agree with you that um yeah, it generalized the fear. Anybody 
Right. Anywhere in the U.S., urban, rural, whatever, they could be subjected to this. And um, I think it was a very deliberate attempt to spread fear and anxiety. But I really appreciate the, the time that you've taken with me today, Graham. Where can people buy your your book, uh, The 2001 Anthrax Deception? Okay, the easiest way to do it at the moment is to um, Google the name of the publisher, which is Clarity Press. If you Google Clarity Press, then you'll look at their publications and you'll see the 2001 Anthrax Deception. My book is one of them. Click on that and you'll find it's got its own separate web page and you can order it from that web page. So you recommend people order directly from the, the publisher? Well, it probably ultimately goes through the same sources. I've just found that they have less trouble that way than if they Google Amazon. So I would okay. say go to the website of the publisher. So so Clarity Press. Clarity Press, okay. Yeah. And is your book available as an ebook as well? I mean, I know I have a copy of the ebook, but are you are you selling that as well? They are selling the ebook as well. I was told that there were some problems in getting it in the right format and they're trying to straighten all that out, but hopefully by now that's figured out. So people should be able to order either the ebook or the hard copy. Great. Yeah, it's a amazing book. I recommend anybody out there who wants to learn about the anthrax attacks to check it out. Um, it is by far uh, the most comprehensive book coming at it from this angle. And, uh, and you, you also were in a recent, um, nine 11 movie. And what, what is the title of that? The, the nine 11 in the academic. Oh yes. Nine 11 in the academic community. Yes. By Adnan Zuberi. And yeah. that, that's especially interesting for anybody who's in a university and who wants to know why they're not allowed to, to quote some of these things in their academic paper or their thesis or whatever, and how they might make inroads, uh, make a little progress in getting this inside the university. It's a good film. Yeah, it's it's a great resource. Um, and yeah, this, uh, you know, let's keep in touch and... Um, and if you find anything new out about anthrax or if I find anything new, um, let's, you know, sh share, share resources and just kind of keep trying to crack this, this mystery open. Absolutely. I appreciate that, Robbie. There aren't too many of us looking into it, so we need to stick together. Yes, definitely. Well, you have a great rest of your evening, Graham. And, uh, okay. And, uh, I'll, I'll send you an email. Thank you very much. then. All right. Thanks okay. a lot for talking. Okay. Hope to talk again soon, Robbie. Okay. Bye -bye. Take care.